Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Our guest today is Dr. Kathleen Kendall Tackett, a health psychologist and international board-certified lactation consultant and the owner and editor-in-chief of Proclaris Press, a small press specializing in women's health. Dr. Kendall Tackett is editor-in-chief of two peer-reviewed journals, Clinical Lactation and Psychological Trauma. She is fellow of the American Psychological Association in Health and Trauma Psychology, past president of the APA Division of Trauma Psychology, and a member of the Board for the Advancement of Psychology in the Public Interest. We will be speaking with Dr. Kendall Tackett about violence, trauma, depression, breastfeeding, and the intersection and impact of all of these areas in domestic violence and child custody cases. Welcome, Dr. Kendall Tackett. Thanks so much. And yeah, please call me Kathy. Oh, thank you. So I recently interviewed Dr. Tanya Yovanovich of the Grady Trauma Project, whose lab focuses on research of mothers who are abused as children and its impact on their mothering relationship and the epigenetic effects on their children. Your research focuses on the intersection of interpersonal violence, motherhood, nursing, trauma, and chronic pain. I'm curious, what motivated you, first of all, to become interested in all of these research topics? Well, the family violence part of it came long time ago, back in 1983. And it started when I volunteered at a rape crisis center over the summer when I was doing my master's program out in California. And that's kind of what started it. And then it led to a number of opportunities for doing research. I did an internship at one of the first incest treatment programs in in the United States uh, and actually persuaded them to let me do some some research there. Then went on to my PhD program and I, I studied how people assess uh, child sexual abuse, you know, like the, what kind of judgments that they make. And so, you know, it was just kind of like, you know, one opportunity after another. The nursing part actually came because of my own personal experiences as a mom. And then, you know, that was, you know, when I started becoming a, a breastfeeding support person, then it was, you know, that was kind of like my fun volunteer stuff in the contrast to my postpartum depression and my family violence work. Uh, but then people started asking me to kind of like lecture when I was at uh breastfeeding conferences, they asked me to lecture about child sexual abuse and postpartum depression. And, you know, so pretty soon those areas sort of merged. You know, several of our guests actually started off or at some point in their lives volunteered at a rape crisis center. How did that experience impact you? Well, one of the things that kind of happened is it was right when, when child sexual abuse was first becoming known. And I was the only one there who was, and I was not a counseling psych major, I was a developmental psych major. And they said, well, you know, listen, you know, we need somebody to get trained on knowing about child sexual abuse. Would you go down to San Francisco and get some training? And I said, yeah, sure. So a couple of us went down there and, you know, spent two days at a really good conference. And then I started kind of teaching uh, in the elementary schools. And, you know, I said it was just kind of like one thing after another. And it was like when the topic was first even sort of coming up, there was almost no research on it at that time. You know, and I remember thinking, wow, this is something I actually could do research on. I could actually, I could actually contribute here. And so that's actually really, the, that first spark actually came from working at the Rape Crisis Center. Mm. Was it hard at the time to get funding for that kind of research? Yeah, 
It's always been hard. <laughs> well, I, I say this also because there's a there's a gender data gap, and especially in medicine and science. So it seemed like when you first started, it must have been even more challenging. That's the interesting thing. It's like I figured out a long time ago that, you know, there's ways to do research with no money. So that's what I've done. Oh, do tell. What, how, what is the secret? Well, there's actually a lot of different things. You know, sometimes you can, I've done some, a couple of studies pulling stuff out of medical charts and case charts, you know, so there's ways to compile data that way. I've done some online work, some online surveys. And so that's actually the big stuff that I'm working on now is a, is a big online survey that we did. And that was actually very effective way to, you know, we got a really incredibly rich data set that way. But yeah, there's, there's definitely ways to do it. I mean, when people say, oh, there's no money, there's no money. It's like, well, you know, figure it out. I think there's probably other ways you can do this. I think what you're doing right now is making yourself available for, for listeners to call you and, and tap you for suggestions around what they can do in this area if they're focused on research. That's an encouraging thing because it's like I said, if you kind of wait for people to kind of come around, I mean, you can spend all your time chasing money, you know, and it's like, or you can kind of think, okay, what else can I do? You know, it's kind of like, you know, the seven habits of highly effective people. That's the first one, you know, you know, what can I do? Mm -hmm. And that, that was kind of an attitude I sort of adopted pretty early in my career. And I thought, okay, yep, I I, I think I'm going to go this way instead. I mean, in some, in some ways it's kind of hurt me in a couple of situations where, you know, I've been up for jobs and, you know, the thing that shot me down was that I didn't have a big, long track record of funding, you know, um, but for the most part, actually, it's, you know, I've, I've had a chance to do pretty much everything I wanted to do. Yeah. I mean, looking at your CV and your website, there's a very rich array of different kinds of research that you've done over the course of many decades. So I've been, I was very yeah. impressed. It was hard for me to actually identify which of those were most relevant. But so speaking of your research, I want to situate the work that you do in the context of the USA Today article that came out titled, The Startling Toll on Children Who Witnessed Domestic Violence is Just Now Being Understood. You yeah. were interviewed to the, for that article and you stated, quote, If a mother is beaten while pregnant, there is a chance the baby will be injured, delivered prematurely, and there is a stack of other things that can happen, including physiological programming of the hyperactive stress system that leads to inflammation as an adult. And then you compare that to when a soldier comes back from combat and hits the ground when they hear it click. So Mm -hmm. I want to delve into each of those components. Your research has shown that when a woman is pregnant past abuse, and recurrent abuse increases her chances of depression, which in turn increases her risk in pregnancy of neonatal complications. And then when she gives birth, these factors further the woman's chances of postpartum depression. So what are the possible impacts on the fetus during pregnancy and on the baby after birth? Well, one of the studies that really I thought was very interesting, it was talking about the impact of both childhood adversity, but also prenatal adversity. And Babies, you know, exposed to prenatal adversity as adults, their inflammation levels tended to be three times higher than babies who weren't exposed to adversity. You know, so I think actually that's that's a pretty significant thing because inflammation is kind of the key to understanding, you know, depression, anxiety disorders, PTSD, but also uh, there's many diseases where inflammation is kind of like the core, you know, so it's kind of like heart disease, diabetes, you know, cancer neurodegenerative diseases, all these things. So that's kind of a scary finding, actually. You know, it really kind of tells you that there's a vulnerability there. But I want to also say that it's never hopeless. 
I really honestly, truly believe that if people can understand this mechanism, you can turn this around. When I was in, I guess, in my 20s, I had a friend whose mother was pregnant during the Vietnam War. And mm. he then became subject to depressive disorders and, um, and alcoholism. And when we were talking about that once in conversation, she said to me that it was all because she was pregnant with him during the war, that it had that impact. Is that possible that the, the hormones of, and trauma of trying to escape a war-torn situation could, could have those consequences on the baby later? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And the thing is, it's probably not just that. It's probably a combination of, you know, then how was she, you know, because it's like, you know, what was her mental state? Mm-hmm. Because we know that that actually really can increase the risk of depression and substance abuse in the offspring. In fact, there was kind of an interesting study. It was talking about sort of long-term effects of parental depression. So it was both mothers and fathers. And what they found is the kids raised with chronically depressed parents had three times the rates, you know, in their 20s. They had three times the rates of anxiety disorders, depression, and substance abuse. Wow. You know, so it, yeah, so it's kind of astonishing. So it's probably not just the prenatal exposure, but it's probably the combination of the prenatal exposure plus the mother's mental state, which would really, honestly, I mean, it makes perfect sense how she felt, but it could actually have impacted kind of how things went for her child. Mm-hmm. You also did research on chronic pain, which is often reported amongst women with a history of victimization and violence. And it's apparently thought to be more common in survivors because traumatic events appear to physiologically lower their pain thresholds, which then create a hypersensitivity to stimuli. So how can chronic pain influence a mother and her parenting? Well, I mean, you know, chronic pain is tough to live with. I mean, and one of the things that it can do is increase the rate of depression, understandably. You know, but what a lot of people now in the chronic pain field are kind of thinking is it's like that it's not just that chronic pain doesn't just have a psychological effect, but that it's actually an underlying mechanism that is actually pain and depression are two manifestations of the same mechanism. You know, and again, it kind of goes back to that hyperactive stress system. You know, when you've got that kind of chronic inflammation going, you're at risk of actually both. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's kind of like, yeah, chronic, chronic pain can definitely impact mental state. It can impact level of fatigue you know, level of engagement. I mean, you know, if you're in pain, I mean, that that's kind of an alarm bell ringing like all the time. But for mothers in pain, this is a book I would actually really recommend. It's called Managing Pain Before It Manages You. It is probably the best pain management book I've ever seen. And it really will help. Okay. And, and also there's the additional risk that a mother who is suffering pain might become addicted to some of the pain medication that she's been prescribed if she's prescribed anything. Well, see, that's the interesting thing. You know, pain management, there's a lot to pain management besides drug. And so good pain management is going to have drugs as one part of that, but it's probably not going to be the the main part. There's going to probably be other things that are going to, other modalities that will help. You know, it depends on the type of pain. You know, and some of it, this is actually what's in that managing pain before it manages you is talking about things like prophylactic rest that, you know, every, you know, say every hour you sit down for 10 minutes and you take a rest, trying to kind of get your sleep better. I mean, there's just a number of things that are going to be contributing to pain management using a TENS unit, you know, using topical creams. There's lots of different things you can do that are not just medication. Are these modalities, do you think, commonly available to women? Oh, yeah. And within the medical profession, they would be recommending this instead of just 
you know, quickly resorting to writing a prescription? I, I don't actually find the medical profession as a whole is very good with pain management, chronic pain management. But get that book and you can actually get a TENS unit for, you know, I don't know, 50, 60 bucks on, on Amazon. I mean, they used to cost hundreds of dollars. But I'll tell you something. Those things are magic. But yeah, I'm you know, using heat and cold and physical therapy and, you know, there's all kinds of, you know, there's, there's a whole regimen of stuff you can do for pain. And I'm just thinking because if we're talking about pain, chronic pain in the context of survivors who may be mm-hmm. continually getting re-victimized emotionally or psychologically mm-hmm. or physically, this is probably something that would be very challenging for her. So managing her symptoms is something that's not just her responsibility, but I also feel is a responsibility for us as a public in terms of a public health issue and all of the consequences of her continued illness on her mothering and the consequences for the children's health as well. Yeah, of course. But yeah, no, honestly, this is something, and you know, there's been actually a lot written about this where people have said that for the most part, you know, medical personnel don't know how to deal with chronic pain Mm. because it sort of defies all their models that they've been taught. You know, the interesting thing with chronic pain is chronic pain can actually occur in places where that have never been injured, you know? And so it's like, they don't know how to explain that. No, and obviously there's some that actually understand this. They, they, you know, there's like, you know, I've seen of Doug Drossman down in North Carolina. You know, he's really done some amazing work on, he was the first one who kind of identified that victimization was related to irritable bowel syndrome, you know, which is, you know, a very common chronic pain syndrome. And um, he was the first one to kind of identify that, you know, so there are definitely physicians that are listening, but I actually find, I find, you know, I, I have lupus myself. So it's kind of like, I know this from my own experience. You know, that chronic pain is something that people in the medical profession, by and large, don't kind of understand. So, yeah, the woman does kind of unfortunately need to navigate this herself, but there's good resources. Mm. And then with regard to lactation and breastfeeding, what role do these factors play, trauma and pain in impacting the breastfeeding relationship? Well, it's kind of an interesting thing, you know. Breastfeeding itself, and, you know, a lot of times people look at breastfeeding as just this way to feed a baby, you know, that it's just kind of, and, you know, then it gets kind of put into this thing of, you know, you're going to do breast, you're going to do bottle, and it's just kind of this idea that it's this product. But from the mother's standpoint, it's a very important way to downregulate that whole stress system. So it downregulates the, the, you know, the HPA access and cortisol, it downregulates inflammation. So basically it's lowering all of those things. And so a lot of mothers find that during the times that they can sit and nurse a baby, that it actually relieves a lot of their symptoms because it's actually turning off that system that's going on all the time. There's some really protective aspects for the mother, you know, involved in nursing. In your article titled Violence Against Women and the Perinatal Period, you cited a study that, quote, an abusive husband or partner may be more likely to consider his partner's breast to be his and not for the baby. And so... I guess I, I bring that up because in a abusive situation, how likely is it for a mother to be able to freely breastfeed if the partner is seeing that as a threat to their relationship or the baby, you know, on the other hand, the partner or the ex-partner could be using the breastfeeding as a way to disrupt the mother-child bond. Oh, yeah, no, I've definitely seen that. Yeah, and unfortunately, it, it is, you know, it's like all the things, you know, all the different studies, you know, that that go into like, you know, why does breastfeeding not work? 
you know, many of them are actually something that you see in abusive relationships too, you know? And so it's kind of like you would expect that overall it's going to be much harder for the mother. And it definitely is. There's no question about that. But I've actually talked to several women just recently, in fact, who actually told me, yeah, you know, I just left this, you know, really long-term abusive relationship. She says, but I nursed all my kids and it was the thing that saved us, you know? So it's kind of like, I don't want to, I don't want to discount that because I really think that sometimes for some moms, it, you know, it's become super important to them and they kind of find a way to kind of sneak it and make it work. But yeah, no, it's like, it, it, it's very difficult, you know, and it's like a, a lot of it depends on, you know, the level of violence and the level of control and things like that. I mean, there's, you know, obviously there's different sort of gradations of, you know, of, of abusive relationships, but it is hard. It's extremely hard, but you know, many moms have told me that it saved them, you know, so it's kind of like I want to. I want to honor their experiences. Mm-hmm. In what way did it save them? What are they? What are they referring when they say that? Well, uh, partly it's because it's just was uh, you know like a little oasis. You know, we know that it actually creates a calm. You know, so it was kind of a little oasis in terms of a really ongoing stressful, horrible situation. But they also said it really tightened their bond with their kids, and they felt like there's one mom that you know with the four kids. She said she felt it saved her kids. Mm. You know, even though there was all this awful stuff going on in the home, you know, just having this little sort of connection was the thing that saved her, saved her kids. On the other hand, breastfeeding often comes up in child custody cases where, you know, abusive fathers characterize breastfeeding as an impediment to the father-child bonding and relationship. Yeah. And what do you say to that? Well, I say that they need to stop being so selfish, <laughs> you know, frankly, because it's so important to the baby's health you know, that they need to just suck it up. And I've actually said this, I've gone to, I've gone to, you know, court a couple of times, you know, over this and written a lot of letters, you know, on behalf of mothers, because, you know, it's like I had a mom call me one time and she was two weeks postpartum and it wasn't abuse, but it was like a a boyfriend girl, you know, it was an ex-boyfriend that was the father of this baby. And he was demanding, you know, to be like, you know, there in the labor and delivery room. And he was demanding to have overnight visitation and the OB actually finally put his foot down and said, absolutely not. You are not going to be in here because she was like losing so much weight. She was like skin and bones from all the stress. Anyway, I talked to her at two weeks postpartum and he was demanding overnight, you know, and so I wrote a letter explaining why that would be a bad idea because, you know, first of all, it is going to dramatically impact the breastfeeding relationship. You know, it's going to dramatically impact her ability to make milk and that, you know, that is important for the baby's long-term health. And so that was the argument that I used. And that certainly was my, in my situation, it, it happened as well, where my abuser expected overnights as soon as the baby, our son was born. And I'm wondering, like, what do you say when the, when the court says, well, why can't you just pump and give him milk? Because <laughs> you know, as a lactation consultant, what the answer is. <laughs> well, you know, partly because it's like, it's very difficult to establish a milk supply that way. You know, the, the, chances, the chances of failure are harder or, or excuse me, are higher if you're relying solely on a pump. Now, mothers do do that, but it's like, I would say at the very least, we're talking at least three months, you know, but it's also too, it's, it's upsetting, you know, in terms of the, 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 the baby, the baby's expecting to be with mom, you know, and so to have an extended period of time where the baby's away, I think it's stressful for the baby. Well, to establish a milk supply, and I think also to maintain one, right? Because I, yeah. I, I remember I had to take supplements to keep my milk yeah. supply going. Yeah. yeah. And that, that's a common, you know, plus to all just, you know, the stress of it, 
You know, so it's like I said, you know, I, I come back to the World Health Organization guidelines, you know, and the AAP guidelines, which is exclusive breastfeeding for the first six months. And I think that that's a, that's a kind of a good guideline. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, unless legal rights have been terminated, you know, the, the father does have, you know, a right to see their, their child. But what you want to do is you want to set it up so that it's not harmful and, you know, detrimental to the breastfeeding relationship. You know, so that's a lot of times, you know, a, a compromise that way can be formed. You know, and again, I said it's it's very different when you're talking about where there's been abuse, you know, because that I think is, is a situation where it's really, quite frankly, dangerous for that baby to be there. But, you know, in cases where it's not abuse, you know, oftentimes you can set up a situation where it's like, okay, you know, a couple of hours, you know, or two or three hours, you know, can be a reasonable amount of time. What do you hope for the courts to understand about the relationship between breastfeeding and child development? Is there is there any way that we can send this message that the two are inextricably tied? It's a little more complicated than that because, you know, it's like you can clearly, you know, there have been lots and lots of babies who have had secure attachments, you know, that have not been breastfed. But you could actually kind of argue in terms of the, you know, the forming the attachment with the mother, I think, is actually kind of an important thing. And, you know, we've got a lot of research about that. I would kind of come back with, you know, in terms of the legal system and come back and talk about it in terms of probably more of the health, you know, because I think that that's something that they understand more, you know. And so if you can kind of sit there and say, look, this is this is what, you know, all the major health organizations are recommending. This is why it's directly related, you know, to infant mortality. It's directly related to all these other health issues. You know, and so this is why it's important. And it's not that, you know, the mother's just trying to be difficult here. You know, that there's there's some kind of real long-term health issues that we got to consider. You know, and that's that would actually be the kind of the point I, w- I would make. Well, it also speaks to the culture of breastfeeding in this country, that there may be internal biases that people who are making decisions about these kinds of relationships and visitation might be unaware of. So you've written about, for example, the lack of structural postpartum support for new mothers and the bottle feeding culture that we have. I think, you know, the obvious major beneficiary to bottle feeding culture is formula manufacturers and later probably big pharma. But you've also shared how photographers, art directors, and graphic designers also play a role, although maybe not intentionally, in propagating bottle feeding culture by producing and reproducing images of improperly latched breastfeeding babies. Can you briefly explain what you mean by this? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that was actually, that was an editorial I wrote because I was going through looking for a bunch of stock photos, you know, for some of my slides. And I saw these ones that were just actually horrifying. I mean, I can't even imagine that that mother was not just wincing in pain. And I'm thinking, you know, fortunately, images are kind of powerful. They sort of like, you know, tie into our sort of right brain and we sort of imprint on those. You know, and, and you know, it, interesting, after that article came out, you know, one of the big lactation outfits, they had a, you know, pop-up that, that somebody, their designer made for them, you know, one of those big ones they have at conventions, mm-hmm. you know, and guess which picture was on there? One of the awful pictures that, that I flagged. I, I actually couldn't believe it. I mean, <laughs> I was just like, you know, so this, this stuff is sort of ubiquitous, but it does kind of show up everywhere. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it does definitely kind of, you know, imprint. Going back to the court case, you know, it's like the, the, one of the things that came up in that court case was the judge, you know, was a woman and who had actually formula fed. And she was just like, no, this makes no difference at all. You know, you need to do this overnight. You know, and it was the same thing with the attorney for the dad. 
You know, they were both like just, they were both, they were both women and they were both just adamant, you know, that this woman was being really difficult. Well, there's a lot of beyond ignorance of the science. There's also a lot of internalized sexism that flows through our society that impacts these opinions too. You know, it's like on one hand, you know, I do kind of understand, okay, you know, there's a situation where, you know, the dad has rights, has legal rights. And this is something that like when I talk to moms about this, you know, and it's like that, that's just kind of inescapable. But again, like I said, what we want to do is make sure that we don't kind of like really stress out and kind of traumatize that baby. And also we don't want to actually compromise their health. I mean, that's, you know, that for me kind of comes back to as a bottom line. Yeah. But as a culture, there's so many reports just, you know, putting aside survivors who are breastfeeding, just thinking about regular breastfeeding moms in public. We have federal laws protecting breastfeeding. And yet as a society, you know, women who are breastfeeding are constantly bullied and and made to, you know, move to unsafe or unsanitary spaces. And right. so basically the law isn't being enforced. And so what do you think is is behind this as a culture? Why are so many people against breastfeeding or at least public breastfeeding? You know, I, I, I don't know. I think, you know, it just kind of comes back to almost sort of a prudishism, which is, you know, a little bit odd considering, you know, the stuff you can watch on cable TV and, you know, the ads where people are, you know, use, use breast to, you know, sell everything from, you know, computers to motorcycles. <laughs> it's kinda, you know, it, it is sort of this strange kind of thing. And it, I don't know, you know, people kind of have these ideas about sort of modesty that, you know, a lot of times a breastfeeding mother can be extremely discreet and yet they get harassed, they get kicked off of planes. I think actually social media in some ways is actually helping with this because I think companies are kind of getting the message that it's really not cool to do this. It takes time to make the change. You know, I was actually one of the people that was there to testify when New Hampshire passed their law back in 1999. And our task force, our breastfeeding task force, actually, you know, was one of the first in the country. And we actually made it a civil rights issue. That's the wording of our law in New Hampshire. And it was actually kind of awesome because all of a sudden it gave the mother some clout. But it came because, you know, a mother was sitting there nursing her baby in a doctor's exam room. And this woman came in, the, the doctor came in, it was an eye doctor. She came in and started berating this mother. I can't believe you're doing that. That's disgusting. Wow. Okay. <laughs> it was a female doctor, you said, right? Yeah. It yeah. Was. Shocking. Yeah. In a private exam room. Yeah. You know, with a three month old baby. It was like, that was the case that actually kind of kicked off the law. And then right around the time we were, we had to make a second go at it. And there was a mother who was actually escorted by two armed security guards out of a shopping mall. I've also heard theories that beyond the prudishness, you know, aspect of our culture, that de- decoupling the breast from its sexual nature is a threat to maintaining patriarchy. <laughs> and another theory is that men are threatened by the reminder, I guess, visual reminder that they don't have these abilities and in any way that they feel threatened, they need to, you know, silence or erase it. And so that's yeah. another reason I've heard. I can kind of see that that could be in some of the case, but many of these things that I've been telling you about, you know, it was actually women who did it. I don't know what that's about, honestly. It's like women who vote for Trump, they're upholding their proximity to power, <laughs> potentially. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, I don't know. You know, honestly, I said it, you know, I have to admit it, 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 it mystifies me. It always kind of has. Okay. So we started the conversation about the USA Today article, and you've done lots of research on the health effects of child abuse 
which includes addressing the four pathways by which abuse can influence health. And this is something that's been known for decades in terms of ACE, the ACE, you know, adverse childhood experiences study, et cetera. And to me, it's just before I get to the questions, it just seems odd that it's been so many decades or not so many, two decades. And yet this information hasn't infiltrated our cultural vernacular that people don't have access to the knowledge that, you know, trauma in childhood could create negative health consequences as an adult. And especially going back to the courts, that if there's always this bifurcation that, oh, well, you were a victim of domestic violence, but he didn't hit the child, or it it doesn't matter to the child because he only hit you. And so to me, I'm wondering if there's, again, of course, cultural resistance to recognizing this connection? And if so, why? I think it's starting to kind of catch on. But I think part of the problem, honestly, is we've thought somehow if we could educate the the physicians about this, that would really sort of take off. But in my experience, it's very difficult to educate the physicians about this. I have done a lot of trainings for medical residents, medical students, and sometimes older physician groups. And I find the older physicians are actually much more interested. The residents and the medical students, nah, forget about it. Even in situations where they're working with very vulnerable populations, they're just not seeing it. They don't see any any relevance to it. And it's kind of unfortunate, I think. I feel bad for the patients, honestly. I still think it's worth, for me, going and teaching these groups because you, usually there's one or two people that are paying attention. And it's kind of like, okay, good, I'll train you. And I know this is going to impact a lot of patients. But yeah, I think, that's, I think that that's been part of it is like we somehow thought that the medical establishment was going to actually pick this up. The group that I actually have seen that has picked this up more is nurses. They get it. And so I find actually that's probably where we probably need to put a a lot of our effort. But yeah, I mean, there's been some public awareness campaigns and stuff, but I find sometimes people really resist this because they don't want to think that this thing that they've been trying to put behind them in childhood is actually impacting their health. And I think that that's hard. I think that's that's kind of a hard thing to hear. Now, some people know, they just know that, that it is related. But some people are like, no, I don't want, no, this is the past and this is, you know, and so I think sometimes survivors don't necessarily want to hear this. Because I think sometimes too, also the way that people phrase it is pretty grim. You know, when you look at even the the ACE study, I mean, you know, that's obviously written for professionals, but it was like talking about dramatically increasing the risk of premature mortality. I mean, it's like, whoa. And what I tried to do actually, and now it's up to five pathways because I added the physiological pathway. But what I tried to do is understand the mechanisms. Like, why, why does child abuse make people sick? And so what I tried to do with that was kind of come up with a framework to understand it because I really felt if we understood the mechanisms that we could actually intervene. I don't want to put you on the spot, but in our interviews, we've addressed multiple times the origin of the ACEs study, Dr. Felitti's discovery with his obesity yep. study. Can you share with our audience how he came to find the connection? Yeah, it was interesting. I've, I've heard him talk several times. I actually know him, but I've heard him like speak at, at meetings. And it kind of started with, he was working in the bariatric program at, at Kaiser. That's the one where they do the, the Metafast program. And what he was finding, you know, and these were, these were for people with women with very high BMIs. And the Metafast program is actually basically medically induced starvation he was actually explaining this to me. It's like, okay, well, you know, if you starve, this system shuts down. So we, we add this to those shakes. We add phosphorus. We add this. I was like, wow. So he's working in this program. And what he was, what he discovered, and he just kind of happened upon this, 
was that women, there was a kind of a certain little subgroup of women that no matter what, just couldn't seem to lose weight, any weight. And he discovered, and he said he was absolutely shocked to discover this, is that all the women had a history of child sexual abuse. And it absolutely blew him away. He said there was nothing in his training as a physician that prepared him to find that. He was just stunned. So this was back like late 80s, early 90s. And he actually published a paper about this like in 91. And that was actually the, the thing that was the trigger for the age study. You know, and he teamed up with somebody at the Centers for Disease Control called Rob Anda. And the two of them actually got the funding and did this gigantic study at, at Kaiser. And that's actually, that's how they started the ACE study. Thank you. Going back to the five pathways now, can you briefly, let's start with the first one, behavioral, talk about the ways in which child abuse impacts behavioral pathway? Well, behavior is the thing everybody studies. If you say, well, yeah, you know, the reason their health is compromised is because they, they do bad things. They smoke, they drink too much, they engage in high-risk sexual activity. So that's, those are the behaviors that people tend to study. For me, they're less interesting than actually why are people engaging in the high-risk behaviors. That's, I think, the important thing to kind of understand. And that's where I think the cognitions actually become the next, that's the second pathway. The cognitions are your, are your beliefs. What do you think about yourself? What do you think about other people? And those things actually can directly lead to some of those high-risk behaviors. Because if you think you have no value or you think you're somehow defective or you somehow deserved this, you don't tend to engage in sort of protective kinds of behaviors. And you may find yourself in situations where it is very dangerous. And, you know, sometimes substance abuse is a way to kind of cope with all those negative feelings. So substance abuse and then substance abuse can lead to revictimization because you end up in more dangerous situations. So the beliefs are very important. And, you know, there's a lot of research in health psychology, which is, which is my field, talking about the importance of your beliefs and your worldview on your health. You know, for example, if you're chronically mistrustful or if you're hostile or you have something called rejection sensitivity where you expect other people are going to reject you, it actually impacts your health. It's actually been directly linked to things like heart disease and diabetes and even cancer. So these beliefs, and they're reasonable beliefs, honestly. If you've grown up in a situation where you have been harmed, it makes sense that you don't trust other people. But mistrust itself actually can be very harmful. So part of it is as an adult making a decision to sort of start changing some of those beliefs. And that's actually going to change both your sort of physiology, because that's the thing. Those impact your physiology. And it's also going to probably change your behavior. So those two very much work together. And then the next one is actually looking at the social impact. We're sort of created to be in relationship with other people. And child victimization actually really can actually impact that. And so people who tend to actually either be very sort of socially isolated, that's a pattern you tend to see more with men, or a pattern you see a lot with women is they become very sort of codependent, that they become the caregiver for everybody. I see this a lot with healthcare providers. There's a higher percentage of abuse survivors in the healthcare system, surprisingly. They become, you know, go on and become healthcare providers. And a danger area for them, and this is the danger for burnout, is you become the caretaker for everybody else and it's never reciprocal. So kind of bringing a balance back to that where there's some self-care plus caring for other people. Caring for other people is good, but you don't want to have it swung clear to one side or the other. You know, you don't want to have like where you're completely on your own or you're completely enmeshed in other people's lives. You want to have that balance. Okay, so that's the social. And also, too, you know, it's like getting involved in relationships where there is re-victimization. 
where there can actually be a continuation of what happened to you in childhood. And in that sort of in that social area, I also look at things like income and I look at things like homelessness. Okay. And both of those, the, both of those factors are, are higher among abuse survivors. And then we also look at the emotional impact. It's like a lot of times as researchers, we studied the impact of, we looked at like things like depression and PTSD, anxiety. You know, we looked at those as the endpoints, but we also need to know that those impact health. People who are depressed have a much higher risk of heart disease. And that actually then ties into the, the factor that I added on later, which is the physiological. And that is actually, again, like how does the impact of childhood adversity sort of shape that developing sort of nervous system and stress system? And we know it does. And we know for trauma in general, you know, you get this sort of hyperactive kind of stress response. So people become more vulnerable to stress. Okay? And that's really kind of the problem. You see the same thing. The health of combat veterans tends to also be you know, have a similar pattern, but childhood adversity seems to be a more pervasive effect. And so again, like I said, you kind of get this sort of hyperactive sort of stress response that manifests in a lot of different ways, manifests in things like sleep problems. It manifests in things like higher BMI that we know that women who have a history of victimization have tend to actually gain weight much quicker and they tend to be higher and heavier, you know, so it's very directly related to that. And again, like I said, it, part of it's kind of understanding that sort of underlying physiology. If you understand that, you know, then you, you have kind of, if you have those sort of five factors, you've got kind of the whole piece. And so then that gives you some points where you can intervene. Okay, so we know the stress system's hyperactive. What do you do about that? Well, a couple of things that really help. Exercise helps because it turns it off. Omega-3 fatty acids help, particularly EPA. Okay, turns it off. So again, understanding that that physiology is really, really important. And then that can actually kind of, what do people think about the world? You know, how do they frame the world and how's that impacting them? How's this impacting their social relationships? Have they continued to get into social relationships with people who are abusive? And kind of how can you sort of get out of that? So all of these things, if we can address these factors, it really kind of makes a big impact on health. Obviously with the ACEs study, you talked about the connection between obesity and childhood sexual abuse or abuse in general, potentially. How does this fit in with body positivity around women's bodies and body images? If I mean, I personally, I feel like I have a very good radar when it comes to recognizing people with unacknowledged trauma and they kind of, you know, I tend to attract these kinds of people for, I guess, engaging in mutual healing. And some of the symptoms have to do with eating disorders. And so to what extent can you you know, where do you draw the line between someone who is visibly showing symptoms of potentially unacknowledged trauma versus someone who, you know, might just think that it's part of loving their body? No, I, I think it's always a possibility. I, I think we do have to be kind of careful not to assume that everybody with a higher BMI is, is a trauma survivor, okay? Because there's just things like genetic differences for one. But I think one of the things that's important for us to know is that oftentimes, you know, and I, this is the talk I do a lot with healthcare providers. When you've got a woman coming to you and sitting in your office, you know, and you want to lecture her on diet and exercise. And I said, you have no idea what she's been through in her life. So keep your mouth shut and keep your judgments to yourself and, you know, stop this body shaming that goes on in healthcare settings. But I think actually, again, like I said, I think it's, it, it's important that we don't necessarily walk around trying to diagnose other people's trauma. Like you, I kind of, I, I talk to a lot of people. But I always kind of feel like if they want to talk to me, they know I'm, I'm there and I'm available. But I don't necessarily try to sort of dig around mm-hmm. in other people's stuff because, I mean, it's just not my, it's, it's, not a, it's not an appropriate thing for me to do. 
So again, like I said, I wouldn't necessarily just by looking at, you know, somebody's weight, try to make a diagnosis of this. I, I, I don't think that would actually be right. Well, I don't mean just by the physical, but if you're having conversations and you feel like there is something to explore, is there space there to make those suggestions to investigate, in other words? And if so, how would you do that? Well, I said, you know, I would tread extremely lightly on that. A lot of times, you know, you can put out just a general kind of comment about, oh, yeah, you know, it's like I look a lot at the link between BMI and and trauma history. But no, I don't necessarily try to sort of dig around. I really don't. I just try to put the information out myself and just have it available. And then people, I feel like if they want to talk to me, they will, but they don't have to. I think it's very important that we, that we are very cautious about that, mm-hmm. you know, because it's like, I think people can talk when they want, but I think if we can just talk generally, I think then sometimes you'll find people will open up, mm-hmm. but they don't necessarily have to. I want to kind of summarize what we've discussed so far. Abused women who have trauma and possibly depression and chronic pain, if they're abused while pregnant, these factors will possibly negatively impact the fetus and the the development of the baby and possibly later even the birth relationship, including the lactation. And so those in turn could possibly impact her ability to mother and create a healthy bond with the baby. And if abuse persists after birth, then the mother and child will be subject to long-term health consequences negative health consequences, potentially, including a combination of all of the pathways that you mentioned, the behavioral, social, cognitive, emotional, and physiological pathway effects. And then potentially the cycle of risk can continue with the child once the child has become an adult. Just sort of digging in a little bit, looking at, let's say, a situation where a survivor is having her trauma and her chronic pain negatively impact her parenting, I could see how that could be weaponized against her. Rather than yeah. you know showing compassion, people are saying she's unfit. What do we do about that? Well, that's when you know you want to get the community organizations coming on alongside that mother and supporting her because it just having you kind of like summarize that what you just said. Yes, there are those negative consequences, but I firmly believe that all of this can be turned around. Even like when you say when the baby's exposed to prenatal adversity, I really think with, with support, that situation can turn around. So it's like what you'd want to do is like instead of weaponizing it, as you said, have these organizations come alongside. And there's lots of good community organizations that, that really are very helpful for mothers. So kind of getting her sort of plugged in with some of those, I think is going to be the, the, the thing that's going to be the most important. But also, too, you know, she's got an ongoing abusive relationship. Boy, we want her out of that if we, you know, we possibly can. How can we help her be in a place where she's safe? Because I think that's probably the top priority. You know, it's like that, that, and then coming alongside her during a time of depression, if she has any trauma symptoms, we want to get these different groups involved that will help her through this rather than try to say, well, I guess this isn't going to work out for you. That's ridiculous. There's people in places that can help and we want to make sure the mom gets plugged in. Well, safety is also, it can be objective, but it also can be subjective. And I I, th- I shared with you, you know, some examples where in New York City, they are responding to the sort of needs, I guess, of the survivor who want to stay within a relationship because for whatever reason, they're not, a, they're, they can't leave. 
and they have to manage that abusive relationship, or perhaps they may not even be ready to recognize that they're in that kind of relationship. And so how do you deal with empowering a survivor and as an individual, but also as a mother in a situation where she's not Mm -hmm. willing to recognize the risk that of harm of, you know, making that choice? Well, for a lot of moms, and especially in kind of high risk situations, the home visiting programs have proved to be just absolutely essential. So that can actually, that's a very good intervention for moms in those situations. And and they deal with that all the time. So that can be a good kind of first step. There's all these different kind of programs for these home visiting, these nurse, you know, it's nurse family partnership and they're all over the place. And in fact, they're in New York, actually, they did a huge study there and looking at that. So that would be, that would be kind of one thing to see if there's a resource like that available for her, because that's going to be probably that lifeline that's going to make a difference kind of eventually in her even being able to kind of get up and leave. Basically, we're going back to the nurses as playing a key role. This is a great segue to the end of our discussion. I ask each guest a series of engendered questionnaire questions that I've adapted from inside the actor's studio. And the first question is, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? Well, I think the health of, of women and children, I think that that's kind of critical if we don't, if we can't end the gender-based violence. And what gives you hope? Seeing people overcome it. And finally, what can we do more of, less of, start or stop to help end gender-based violence? I think part of it's going to be kind of a recognition. And I think there, you know, has to be some systemic changes. There have to be changes in healthcare settings. I know people who are doing a lot of work in this area. There have to be changes in, in courtroom settings. There has to be sort of acknowledgement of kind of understanding how violence works and kind of like some of the decisions that get made in courts are pretty ridiculous in terms of the woman. A lot of times it's not safe. And as I said, yeah, there's been some custody things that I've just absolutely felt like weeping over, you know, that I've known of. So I think some systemic changes, but I think also too, I really honestly think a lot of these changes are going to come kind of from the bottom up. So they're going to be, they're going to be kind of grassroots. So I think to the, to the extent that we can empower, we can empower women to kind of make changes in their own lives. I think that that's going to kind of eventually sort of drive changes at the higher levels. I don't think this is going to be a top-down change. Kathy, it's been very illuminating talking with you. Thank you so much for spending the time to explain all of these different concepts. And I really do think that it's going to make a difference. So really thank you again. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by CanDoIt Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join CanDoIt Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.